I know Jordan already said it, but I'm, I'm really excited for this sermon series. I think it's going to be awesome. And the reason I think it's like going to be so cool, the reason I'm so excited is I think as we, as we go through and we see the Bible as this one story, this, this unified story of God and his people, I think like light bulbs are going to start going off in our head. I think we're going to, I think we're going to start, oh, that's my microphone. I wore a cardigan. It was a bad idea. Yeah, there we go. That's better. Um, I think I think as we look at the story of the Bible, and I, I think we're going to start connecting dots, and we're going to start to make connections that we didn't see before, and we're going to realize, man, all of this is pointing forward to Jesus. Spoiler alert, all of this is pointing forward to Jesus, um, and, and we're going to see that stringing throughout the Bible, and that's... It's just a really cool thing. I remember um, junior year of college. So Jordan, Jordan Adams and I, our fearless leader, we were roommates our junior year. And I remember coming back to our dorm, and he was reading Exodus. And he's going to teach on Exodus in a couple weeks, which is sweet. He was reading Exodus, and he was reading how people were saved by the blood of the Lamb. And he goes, Isaac, it's Jesus. It's talking about Jesus. And just like this moment of excitement and this light bulb going off, I think that's going to happen. And I think we're going to grow in an appreciation for God's plan. And I, I pray that through that, we're going to grow in affection for God. So let me just pray for us really quick before um, we dive in. Uh, let me pray for, for this series that we're going to go through. Yeah, God, I, I thank you for being... Uh, just a master craftsman and, and a perfect author. And as you've written this beautiful story that we not only get to, to read about, but we get to exist in and be a part of. Um, God, would you give us wisdom by your spirit to interpret and understand your word? Would you give us um, insight to help us make connections in scripture and see how everything is pointing to Jesus and his victory over sin and death? and then to the ultimate realization of that victory in the new heaven and the new earth. Would you grow our ability to understand and appreciate um, and love you as we see your love for us in the story of the Bible? I pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so like Jordan said, we have this paragraph, and it's a really, really brief summary of the story of the Bible, the story of everything. And for the rest of the semester, we're going to go through the paragraph one sentence at a time, and we're going to talk about just that part of the story. So our sentence for this week is this. You guys can follow along in your card if you have it. Our sentence is, In the beginning, God created all things and lived with human beings on his good earth. But humankind betrayed him, so humans were cursed and removed from his presence. Not exactly a cheery sentence to start with. Things start out really well, go downhill really quickly. But like we said, we get to look forward to Jesus, which is great. Um, so we, we get this sentence, we get this part of the story from Genesis uh, chapters 1 through 3. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead to open there. Um, if you have your phone, Bible app, you can open to Genesis 1 through 3. We're going to be kind of jumping around and looking at different sections of these three chapters. And since we're highlighting kind of the overarching narrative or storyline of the Bible, I thought it would be appropriate to kind of the, to look at the elements of a story, like what makes up a story, and then use that as a structure to talk about um, this opening passage. Now, I am by no one's definition 
um, a literary expert, but I do know how to Google things. Um, and a quick Google search told me that there, basically speaking, there are five um, basic elements of a story. These elements are plot, settings, character, the conflict, and the theme. And these elements uh, all get introduced, at least in part, pretty quickly um, in the story of the Bible. Now, the, the plot doesn't like really get introduced. Um, the plot is, is just what happens. The plot is the action. It's the events. It's the things that happen in the story. So we'll obviously be looking at the plot as it unfolds. But for the structure of this conversation, we're going to be focusing on those um, other four elements. And we're going to start with setting. And so setting, if you remember from like elementary school reading class, uh, the setting is the when and the where of the story. It's, it's the environment in which like the characters exist and the action or the plot takes place. And throughout the story of the Bible, the, the setting is, is constantly changing. Like time is always pressing forward as it tends to do. And the characters are, are moving about from place to place. It's, it's always changing and shifting. Um, but there's something like really, really interesting about the setting right at the beginning of the Bible. So let's look at just the very first verse of Genesis. Genesis 1.1. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So right here in the first sentence of the Bible, the setting is established. We get the when, which is right at the beginning, and we get the where, which is earth. In the span of one sentence, God, who is the main character of the Bible, we're going to talk more about him in a minute, God has created earth. The details aren't all fleshed out yet, but we're 10 words in, and the guy's made a planet. He's doing pretty well so far. It's not a bad start. Um, but, but what's going on at the, at the beginning of the sentence? Like, what's going on at the very beginning, before, before the action happens? We see the action of him creating the heavens and the earth, but what's going on before that? It says, in the beginning, God. Like before land and sea, before the plants and animals, before the earth and the stars and the light and the dark, God was. God doesn't, he doesn't have a beginning. He brings about the beginning. And before the beginning, before he whispers into existence the entirety of of the physical world, God himself is both the singular character and the setting of the Bible. Right? It's like all that exists is God. He's all that there is. And this, this concept, the concepts of, of when and where that we usually define the setting by, those concepts of when and where as we know them don't exist yet. Like, God creates the when and where. And it's, it's so hard for us to, like, wrap our mind around this idea because we, we don't have anything else to relate it to. Like, God, eternity is, is a characteristic that is entirely unique to God. There was no point in time at which he came into being. He always was. He always will be. He's the uncaused cause. He's the unmoved mover. He created and he set into motion all things. So, so in this one sentence, we have a really dramatic change in setting. We go from God himself as the setting to a physical place called earth. 
And then God creates this place on earth called Eden, and in it he plants this beautiful garden, which is a perfect home for some more of the characters that we're going to meet, Adam and Eve. And they live in this, this utopia. They live in perfect relationship with God. It's how things are supposed to be. It's how God designed it. Okay, so we have the setting. Let's start talking about the characters. And at this point in the story, the cast is pretty easy to keep track of. Like, the Bible's really long. We're going to meet a lot of characters along the way, and it'll get a little bit hard to keep track of. We're going to have long, like, lineages that are really boring to read and have really confusing names. But as of right now, it's really easy. We just have a few characters. We have God. We have Adam and Eve, or in a broader sense, humanity. And then we have the serpent, or Satan. So let's talk about God. We've, we've already met him a little bit. Um, he's busted on the scene in a big way. At first, he was the scene, and then he created the scene. But, like, you get the idea. He's made an impression. He's made his presence known. Let's, let's go and continue reading in Genesis 1. We'll read a little bit further. We're going to start in verse 1 again and then read through verse 10 of chapter 1. It says, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The darkness was over the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated light from darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. All right, so we see see a pattern emerging here. And if you continue to read through chapter 1, you'll see the pattern continue, this pattern of, and God said, let there be, dot, 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 insert creation here, followed by, and it was so. So at least seven times in Genesis, God calls different aspects into creation simply by the power of his word. Like he speaks and it just happens. So this is probably the dumbest imagery I can think of, but like it it came into my mind the other day and now I can't unthink it. Um, Have you guys seen the videos of like bros with vape pens, like blowing smoke rings and stuff? It's super dumb. It's like kind of cool, but just mostly super dumb. Like, guys, if you find yourself making vape, vape trick videos, like you've gone wrong somewhere, reevaluate your life decisions. You're, you're doing it wrong. Ladies, if you find yourself dating a guy making vape stunt videos, shut it down. Walk away. It's not the guy for you. You can do better. I promise you, you can do better. Okay. But... <laughs> But I got this image in my head, right, of God, of God speaking 
And as he speaks, this like swirling cloud comes out as he speaks. No, no, follow me, follow me. It's really, it's really pretty imagery if you just let it, if you let it play out. So God, this image of God just breathing out this whirling cloud as he speaks. And then as it clears, like, bam, the earth is there. It's like, and then there's mountains and valleys and rivers. So the smoke just dissipates over earth. It's like, he blows, no, follow me, come on, keep up. It's like he blows this perfect smoke ring, and then out of the middle of it come charging like this stampede of like wild Mustangs, and they're just like tearing across a prairie, and it's really cool. You're laughing, but it's really sweet. Think about it. It's just like this swirling like symphony of creation as like things are just materializing. God is speaking creation into being. Now, obviously, I can't say like that's exactly how it went down. I don't know. I don't know what it looked like as he did it. But as God perfectly and effortlessly breathes out creation, God's status as the ultimate authority in the cosmos is put on full display. He speaks and things happen. He puts his authority right in front of us. And in that authority, he declares his creation to be good. As the creator, he gets to decide what is good, and his creation is, is good. It's really good. He's really good at making stuff. So the next characters we're going to meet in the story are Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve are, are pretty unique among creation. There's something special about him. And there are a couple clues that kind of hint to their uniqueness. Uh, the first clue we get is that there, there are two creation accounts of Adam and Eve, of humanity. And anytime you see something repeated in the Bible, you should stop. You should take note of it. Like the author is repeating it because it's, it's important. He's repeating it on purpose. He's drawing your attention to it. Take note of it. It's an important thing. The second clue we get is that up till now, God has been making things just by speaking them into existence. But let's look really quick uh, at Genesis 2-7, if you guys want to look there. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. A few verses later, he, he takes one of Adam's ribs, and from that rib, he forms Eve. And God, like, it was very much within his power to make humanity just like he made everything else, just to speak it into existence. But he takes the time to be particularly involved and relational about crafting humanity. It's a clue that there's something unique about his creation of humanity. And then the last clue that we have to this uniqueness is, is not really a clue at all. It's, it's way more obvious than that. It's just God speaking in really plain terms about why humanity is special. So let's look at chapter 1. We're going to read a few verses, um, verses 26 through 31. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Pause real quick. 
we're learning more things about God. It says, then God, singular, said, let us, plural, make man in our image after our likeness. Right away in Genesis, it's hinting at the Trinity. It's hinting at the idea of God being this singular being who is somehow in community within himself. And we're not going to unpack that right now, but it's so cool that right away in Genesis, we see this idea of God existing in perfect unity, yet within community within himself. Let's keep going. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heaven and to everything that creeps on the earth, every, um, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So, Mankind is made in God's own image. And that in itself is kind of a mystery because God is spirit, right? God, God doesn't have uh, an inherent physical form, and yet somehow humanity is reflecting God's image. So he makes mankind in his image, and then God blesses them, and he gives them authority to rule over creation with him. Just like, think about how incredible that is. It's like God makes, he makes a perfect world and then he like turns to his newly created humanity and he tosses them the keys and says like, all right, it's ready for you. Like, you go ahead, you drive it, you take over. Like humanity is invited to reign over creation with God. Perfectly good and innocent living in the immediate presence of God, ruling over creation with him, that's how it's supposed to be. Like that's the reality God made us for. And before we move on to the last character um, of this part of the story, there's something that, that we need to note about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, the mother and the father of all humanity, they are representatives of humanity. Now, like, don't misunderstand me here. Adam and Eve are, are literal people that actually existed, but as the first, and up to this point, the only human beings that exist in the story so far, they act as the representatives for all humanity that will come after them. And when you, like, in your mind, try to picture Adam and Eve, when you look at Adam and Eve, you should see your reflection staring back at you. You should see yourself in them. 
you should see that that they were created that they were created for um sorry I just lost my spot in the thing and then and now here we are talking about how I lost my spot um you should see that they I just need to find my idea guys it's been a long day <laughs> men's group at 6 a.m. is anybody there good times <laughs> <laughs> um you should see yourself in in Adam and Eve. You should see yourself like doing their actions like in unison with them. Like you you should see their actions and know that they are your actions, the good and the bad. They they represent you. And in that way like you are Adam and you are Eve. They represent you and all of us in humanity in a unique way. All right, let's uh let's meet our last character in this first part of the story. Um it's it's the serpent and we're going to look at Genesis 3:1 through 5. This is what it says. It says now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. He said to the woman, "Did God actually say You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, "We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, 'You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden; neither shall you touch it, lest you die.'" But the serpent said to the woman, "You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, and your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil." Okay, now right away we notice that something is off about this snake. The most obvious being, he talks. How is the snake talking? If you're out and about somewhere and a snake starts talking to you, it's a red flag. Something is wrong. Run away. The the other hint that we get that something might be wrong that like maybe there's another force at play here. just besides the serpent itself is that when the serpent talks he lies every time he speaks he's twisting words and and presenting false truth now when god made all creatures he declared that all his creation was good but this snake seems bad snake is bad news so what's happening well we need to look around at other passages in the bible to kind of fill us in and give us some more insight into the situation. Now we we don't have a lot of time. I'm not going to go through like every reference uh together as a group, but if you're curious and you want to talk afterwards about it, um come find me and I'd I'd love to have a conversation with you. Um but what we learn as we look around in the scriptures is that Satan is at work in the serpent. This snake, which was part of God's good creation, is is not working of its own accord. but is being controlled and manipulated by Satan. Satan is the operative character at work here. But who like who is Satan and and where did he come from? Like we just saw all of creation. So like when did he show up on the scene? And if you read everything that the Bible has to say about Satan, you're still going to have a lot of questions. There's still going to be a lot of blank spaces, a lot of question marks, but this much we know. 
Satan was once an angel. He was created by God. At some point, he chose to rebel against God, and he was cast down from heaven. And as far as, like, when he was created and when he fell, we're, we're really not sure. The beginning of Genesis gives us a description of the creation of, of the physical world, but it tells us very little about what's happening in the spiritual world. And there is a spiritual world that exists that is just as real as the physical world, but, you know, not, not physical, but just as real. But we don't, we don't get a lot of clues as to, like, what's happening there. There are a few passages that give us uh, some hints, but, again, we don't have time to go through all of them. Come find me afterwards, and, and like we can nerd out about it if you want. But one thing that we do see in Genesis that might clue us in um, is that at the end of the sixth day, or this uh, sixth period of time of creation, God completes his creation, and he says, it's very good. And in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. So the, the phrase, the host of heaven, in the Bible generally refers to angelic beings that exist in God's presence. So if this verse is indeed referencing those spiritual beings that occupy heaven in the direct presence of God, then we can assume that, that Satan hadn't rebelled yet that he was still in good standing with God at the end of chapter 2. And his fall happened somewhere um, between, or excuse me, the beginning of chapter 2, and that his fall happened somewhere between the end of the sixth day and the events of Genesis 3. That's what I got for you so far. I know you probably have questions, but we're going to keep moving through it. So into the garden creeps Satan to do like what he does best, lie. And he's, he's really good at it. He's a really skillful liar. Jesus spoke of Satan in John 8, 44. Um, he said, he was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Like Satan is a master deceiver. And if you pay careful attention to what he says in Genesis, you'll notice one of his, his most powerful and his most effective tactics. He doesn't like come in guns blazing and start spouting off like a bunch of crazy lies that would be like easy for us to spot, easily identified as untrue. He doesn't do that. He, he comes in quietly, and he asks a, a misleading question in order to sow seeds of doubt. And then he takes a lie, and he wraps it in as much truth as possible to make it seem like right, to make it palatable. All he has to do is distort the truth like ever so slightly, and suddenly it becomes a lie. It becomes a lie that's hard to identify, but easy to swallow. Guys, be on guard. Like Satan is still using that same tactic constantly. Every day, he wants to mislead people. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he wants to trick you now into choosing death rather than life. And tragically, Eve... Eve falls for it. 
And as a result, the conflict of the story emerges. So to look at the conflict, let's, let's keep reading. We're Genesis 3, um, verses 6 through 13. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave, uh, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So rather than trust God, and his definition of good, Adam and Eve rebel against God and choose to define good and evil for themselves. Like, how often do you do that in your own life? A lot of, a lot of God's rules, Jesus makes some like pretty clear commands about how we should live our lives. And yet, I, I constantly finding myself asking the question, like, is that really what he meant? Like, is this, is this really better? I want to become the, the authority for myself of, of what's good, what's for my good, and what is ultimate good. So Adam and Eve choose to define for themselves good and evil. And their betrayal of God, it leads to this, this immediate fracture and brokenness in their relationship with God. Suddenly, they're, they're afraid to be in his presence because they realize that they're naked. Like, the distortion and the perversion of human sexuality happens immediately. And then God asks them what happened, and both Adam and Eve try to pass the blame. They become defensive when they're called out in their sin, and they try to find an excuse to justify it. Are you, are you starting to see your reflection in Adam and Eve? Like, does that evasion of responsibility for your actions feel familiar to you? Sure does to me. So the result of Adam and Eve's act of rebellion is that God curses them and they're forced out of the garden. They're removed from the immediate presence of God. Sin and God's presence don't mix. Like, his perfect holiness is incompatible with any measure of sin or imperfection, and now mankind is stained by sin. Adam and Eve were told that if they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then on that day they would surely die. God is not a liar. They died a very real spiritual death that day as they were cut off 
from the giver of all life, and they were removed from the perfect home that he had created for them. And we as their offspring, having been represented by them, were born into that same death and that broken relationship with our Creator. It's a condition that we're born into as descendants of Adam and a condition that we, we perpetuate with our constant sin. So how are things going to be made right? Where are we going to find a solution? How are things going to get fixed? And it's in the midst of this curse that God decrees over humanity that we see a, a glimmer of hope, a promise that reveals the main theme of the story of the Bible, or at least a main theme that we're going to look at. You can, you can trace a lot of themes throughout the Bible, but I think one that we're really going to focus on in this series is, is restoration. This idea of returning things to their original condition, to making things the way that they were supposed to be. Because the big question is, like, how is God going to fix this relationship that humanity broke? How is God going to restore the people that he created for himself to himself? How is he going to bring them back in? Let's look at this promise, this like whisper of hope for, res uh, for restoration in verse 15 of chapter 3. Uh, this part of the curse God is actually declaring over the serpent, over Satan. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In a lot of translations, that last part um, reads, he shall crush your head and you shall strike his heel. Within the curse, God promises that a descendant of Eve will one day come and defeat Satan. Like Satan is gonna get a shot in, he's gonna do some damage He's going to strike the heel of this promised descendant, but ultimately he will be crushed. Evil will be defeated. Sin will be overcome and a path to restoration will be made available. Like man will once again be able to dwell with God. And that's what Jesus does, guys. That's what the story is pointing forwards to. Jesus, he pulls us out of the death that we were born into he cleanses us of all unrighteousness, healing our brokenness of relationship with God. And he promises that one day we're going to get to go home to the place that we were made to be, where we live forever in the presence of God. Jesus is the snake crusher, and the whole story of the Bible points to him and the restoration he's bringing to creation. We know the end of the story, but it, it doesn't make it any less sweet. And I pray that our hearts would, would swell with affection for God as we read the story unfold, that unfolds in the Bible and that the story that we're now living in, in this moment, that we would get to look forward with great anticipation to its ultimate completion. Like, that's the hope that we have in Jesus. And if, if you wouldn't say that's you, if you haven't put your hope in Jesus, first of all, thanks for being here. We're really excited you're here. We're really excited to walk with you through the story of the Bible. And I hope that you would, you would see yourself in Adam and Eve. You would see the brokenness that you've 
cause in your relationship with God and that you would receive that path of restoration that Jesus has made available. Let's pray together. And God, I'm, I'm sorry for, for my sin and for the damage that it's caused for this situation that it's, that it's put me in where I'm, I'm cut off from you um, and my relationship with you is strained by my sin. But thank you for Jesus that, that in him and in him alone, I can walk into your presence. God, you've, you've told us that in the blood of Christ, we can approach your throne with confidence because Jesus brings that restoration. He wipes away the guilt of our sin and we can be in relationship with you. We can be in your presence, God. And your presence is a scary place to be where, where a speck of sin is unacceptable. But thank you for Jesus that we are made perfect through him and through his work on the cross. And would we, again, just with, with great anticipation, look forward to the day when, when we get to enjoy the fullness of that victory that Jesus has won on the cross. We pray these things in your name. Amen.